You like that, Kaylee? Oh, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. You need to write some of these down. You can use them at school. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're about to enter into Romans chapter 7. And I'll tell you, we're kind of moving through Romans here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember years ago when J. Vernon McGee talked through the Bible on the radio. Uh, he was a great Bible teacher. He wasn't much for doctrine, but from a practical application of just the Bible, he was, he was just a, a great Bible teacher. And he's dead now, been dead many, many years. I remember on a radio program, he, had a, he went through the books of the Bible. And uh, every book of the Bible, uh, he had a little thing for it, you know, like it was, uh, uh, well, when you get to Romans, it was roaming through Romans, you know. I, I guess in every, every book of the Bible, he had a little phrase like that, you know, Thessal thumbing through Thessalonians or something like that, you know. And, uh, but we're going we're gonna, to, we have been roaming through Romans, and uh, uh, we certainly haven't been rushing through it, but uh, we want to learn it. Remember I told you when we started that probably the two books in the New Testament that are really, and they really go hand in hand, but the two books in the New Testament that if you're ever going to really uh, get in life and really grasp a hold of and, and in your own Christian life to make any difference, you're going to have to learn the book of Romans and you're going to have to learn the book of Acts. And we're going through the book of Acts in Institute right now, and some point probably in church we'll come through the book of Acts, but uh, we decided to go through the book of Romans because of its importance of, of really how it, it lays out. Into, it's really the key of why we believe what we believe as a church. A lot of heresy floating around today and a lot of bad teaching, and most of it's because of the fact that uh, God's people today aren't grounded in the book of Romans. And I always want this church to be grounded in not what I teach, but what the Bible says. What I believe or what I teach is immaterial to what the Bible says. And uh, I, I try to train you and show you not to think like I think, but to think for yourself and to look at the Bible. And, uh, you know, I may point you in, a, in the right direction, but ultimately you have to be the one that gets in there and, uh, and put it all together. And I showed you how, you know, to me, every book of the Bible has a breakdown. And I think that, uh, you know, a natural way that God breaks it down, which makes it easier for us to study. And I took about eight or nine years of my life and, and went through each book and, and, and found the breakdown of each book. And I gave you, you know, I gave you Romans when we started. And I showed you that Romans really breaks down into four sections. And any book in the Bible, when you want to start to learn it, you've got to find out that breakdown. Because otherwise, sometimes it all runs together and you get confused. Maybe one section will run into another section, and you won't see the break there, and it gets confusing. But Romans is a book that follows basically a four-section breakdown. The first section, which uh, brings you through a historical section, and that'll be Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5. The second section will be the doctrinal section, and that will be the section that really lays out the teachings for you and for me in the church, and that'll be chapter 5, 6, and 7. And eight. Five's kind of a, a bridge chapter. It kind of usually goes both ways. Then we have what we call the prophetic section. And that'll be the section that deals with the nation of Israel, and God teaches us how we are to deal with it. And that'll run you up through chapter 9, 10, and 11. Then the last section is called the great practical section. That'd be, that'd be the rest of the book. And that'd bring you up through uh, chapter uh, 13, uh, right up through, uh, uh, right up to the end of the book. And in those particular sections right there, you really, really, really get a practical of how to deal with life on planet Earth. 
where the doctrinal section teaches us what, I be what we believe, the, the practical section shows it in an action in everyday life. And if you just take that little outline and put that into your Bible, you'll, you'll find out uh, a lot about the book of Romans. And that's the format, by the way, that I'm coming through and trying to lay it out because I think that's the easiest way to grasp it. But we are focused on, right now, chapter 6, 7, and 8. We're in the doctrinal section about to start chapter 7. And I told you when we started chapter 6, 7, and 8 as a section that they are called the great death chapters. Uh, maybe not in the way that you think of death, but in reality they, they teach us this. They show us in these great three chapters how that Christ's death on the cross, when it's applied to your life and my life at the time of salvation, and now because we're saved, we are dead to all the issues, all the issues that would keep us from a relationship with Christ. Hence, they're called the death chapters. Remember in Romans chapter 6, we talked about Christ's death on the cross in relationship to you and me being dead in the flesh. We talked about it for many, many weeks, how that now that you and I are saved, that you know we are to reckon ourselves dead. Why? Because Christ's death on the cross made us dead to our flesh. And uh, it's the key as we've talked about many, many times, to our victorious Christian life and everything that we try to accomplish and everything that we do. You're going to find that chapter 6, which deals with the death and relationship uh, to our flesh, builds into chapter 7, and chapter 7 then builds into chapter 8, kind of like a progression. Because we're going to start today chapter 7, and chapter 7 deals with Christ's death on the cross and how through His death, that we are now dead to the law. This is a very important chapter. This puts a lot of things in perspective for you because it shows you not only the main difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, but it shows us how the law, how the Old Testament law affects us now that we are saved or how it doesn't affect us. Now, I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and it starts out with a great illustration. Now, I'm going to kind of... When I, when I come to a tough passage in the Bible that if I just gave it to you and, and plowed into it, I'm afraid I'd lose many of you young Christians. And uh, uh, so what I usually do in a situation like this is read the text, go back and break down and give you all of the background material so you can form uh, a foundation and then move into the answer and then kind of put it all together for you. Now, don't take offense to that. It doesn't because it is an insult to your intelligence that I think you're not smart enough to grasp it. But this is the way I had to do it. I mean, I'm not the brightest light bulb in the box when it came to the Bible. And I had to break things down in a very basic, understanding way. And for me, a lot of times the way to understand a tough passage in the Bible is to go back and get all the background material formed up first, which kind of sets a foundation, and then put it back into perspective as we go on from there. So that's what we're going to do. But I want to begin reading today, Romans chapter 7, and we're going to read the first six verses here. It says this, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are become dead, uh, also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins 
which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we ask you now, Lord, today to bless us as we come to your word. Those people, Lord, have made the trip today. Some of them have come a long way. Some of them have come, Lord, uh, to hear your word and to, to be edified by it. And some of them, Lord, are visiting today, and, and some of them are checking out our church to kind of scope it out to see if this is where they want to invest their lives. And, Lord, I pray today that, that you'll take the word of God, that you'll help us to see and grasp all the great truths. We love you. We thank you, Father, for what you have for us and what you give to us, and we pray now today that you'll take this time. Allow me to break this down and help them to understand it, and, and for those that are trying to break down the book of Romans and get it into their Bible, may I, Lord, be able to dissect it all out and make it clear and plain to them. Spirit of God, it all depends on you. I yield myself to you now, Lord, and I ask everyone in this room to, in their own heart right now to yield themselves to your Spirit that you may give them what you have for them. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now this story here, if you would just read this on your own, if you're coming through Romans chapter 7, again, the way Paul writes these things, I mean, it's like a legal document. <clears throat> and it can become <clears throat> much of the confusion on Romans is simply the way he writes it, and us not being familiar with the style by which he writes the book of Romans. We talked about when we started Romans how that this country... Uh, has a constitution, and I don't know if they still do it in school, but in civics class, uh, when I was in school, you had, to, you had to memorize the Declaration of Independence, and thank God you didn't have to memorize the Constitution, but you had to memorize the Declaration of Independence, and in some cases, the Bill of Rights. Well, anybody who's ever read it understands at a glance how tough it is because of the way it's written. I mean, uh, those legal things that bind this country together are written in such a fashion that even today we have scores and scores of lawyers, when an issue comes up, you know what they do? They, they fight over the interpretation of that, that Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or whatever it is, and they fight over what exactly the Founding Fathers meant. Even they are hung up on the language. And of course, you know, the Book of Romans, as I said when we started, is the Constitution of Christianity. That's why it's written the way that it's written. It's definitely written in a legal format because it is a binding contract between God and between uh, you and I as His children. And so some of the things, the way that He says them, if you just look at them at face value, it can become intimidating and confusing. But we're going to break it down today as best we can. And, and here's how we, we look at this. You know, this story here is a great illustration of what really what happened at the time you got saved. And, I, you know, and many times... People, Christians, pastors, make the mistake of taking Romans chapter 7 and using that along with, you know, it's the, the passage that they're quoting here in the Old Testament is out of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and also uh, Matthew chapter 19. And so what you have here is most churches that don't understand how the, what he's doing in Romans, they take this passage along with the Old Testament passages and they, they try to set this up as the teaching to the church on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And of course, uh, many, many times, uh, you know, many good people are, are, are hurt by uh, uh, some bad teaching that it gets put out because people don't really understand uh, the concept from the New Testament, anyhow, uh, on divorce, remarriage, and, and, uh, and marriage in general. 
And most Baptist churches today, you know, if you're a divorced person, uh, you know, uh, you're on the you're on the kin of going to hell for all of eternity and never ever getting your life turned around. Most churches today, Baptist churches anyhow, they take the position, and the reason why they do is because they don't understand the Book of Romans. And so what they do is they see this passage and they go back and read the same passage, basically on Deuteronomy chapter 24, where, where he's quoting it from. So they come up with the idea that if you've ever been divorced, that you can't ever, ever, ever be remarried again unless your spouse is dead. And basically till that spouse dies, you can't ever be remarried. So you've got to live in a state of, of uh, you know, uh, no eHarmony.com for you. You're, you're in trouble. You know, you just go on through life and have to put up with, your, you know, the flesh all through your life. And of course, uh, and then as far as ministry is concerned, oh, wow, you can never do anything. I never forget one time, <clears throat> uh, I was talking to a, a, a couple of guys who were going to another church, and this church, and, and, and I, for the life of me, I don't know why people put up with it. I mean, people put up with some of the most heretical teachings that do nothing but hurt them uh, and beat them up. I don't, I don't know why people put up with that kind of stuff. I don't know. But anyway, I was talking to a couple of guys, and they were going to a church, and these were two of the nicest guys who probably had more potential to serve God than most people that you meet. I mean, they were just really, really, really good guys, and they really loved God. They really wanted to learn the Bible, and they really wanted to do something with their life. But because they had both been divorced, you know, I was the, you know, it was the impardonable sin, you know, in the church. They could never do anything in the church. And, of course, the pastor's stand was that if you're divorced, you know, you're anathema. You can't ever do anything. You can't, you know, and I was kidding them, trying to make a good point. And I, I was saying to them, because they were, they were down in the dumps, and, you know, sometimes you want to, you know, bring a point through humor to try to, you know, get it through their head. And I said, oh, so, okay, so now your church teaches the fact that that if you've been divorced, you can't. Here's what you can't do: uh, you can't ever, you can't ever teach a Sunday school class. Oh no, we couldn't do that. Right, you can't ever be a deacon or be a place of leadership. Oh no, we would never do that. Oh, you can't ever. If God ever calls you to preach, you can't ever. Pastor. Oh no, we could never pastor. Okay, you can't ever, you can't ever serve on an environment. Oh no, we can't do that. And I said, okay, you, there ain't much for you. Let's see now. Let's see what your church will let you do. Let's go back again. You can't be a deacon. You can't teach a Sunday school class. You can't teach this. You can't do that. You can't do any of this. What will they let you do if you're divorced? Oh, yeah. Yeah, here it comes. They'll let you tithe. They won't let you do anything, but they want your money. And, of course, the teaching for divorce, marriage, and remarriage is not found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's not found in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, and it's certainly not found in Matthew chapter 19. Most people don't know that there's a difference between the Old Testament law on divorce remarriage than it was in the New Testament. Now, my purpose is not to get into that today, uh, but th just to give you in by way of information, if you want to know where the New Testament teaching for the church is, uh, on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, see? That's where it's at. It's, uh, it's, it deals very carefully there, and you'll find if you come down through that, 20 guidelines, 20 guidelines, 20, 2-0, 20 guidelines given to the New Testament church on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And very frankly, 90% of it has nothing to do with what is written in the Old Testament. It's the difference between Old Testament law and Old Testament grace. And, and can I, you know... Look, bring your attention back to 7.1 where he says, Know ye not, brethren, and in parentheses, I speak to them that 
know the law. Well, we're not under the law. And God created a whole different dealing scenario for, for the New Testament and divorce, marriage, and, uh, and uh, remarriage than He did in the Old Testament. And that's the point I'm trying to make because I don't want anybody, anybody to feel, take this the wrong way and to think that this church stands on the fact that if you have been married and, and been divorced and are remarried again, that your life is over as far as God is concerned. That's certainly not true. Obviously, there's some things that you need to do and some things you need to work out into your life. There's no question about that. But to say that the rest of your life you'll never be able to serve God, never be able to do anything for God, or never be able to hold a particular office for God uh, based on that one bad choice or situation you made in life is absolutely ludicrous. Most of the pastors that uh, get up and spout that kind of stuff uh, in their backgrounds, in their past, uh, if, if we're going to take that sin, we have to take all the other sins. There's not one more worse than the other. And the whole issue rests on the fact of understanding that in the Old Testament, he had a one set of guidelines for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he has another set of guidelines. And the person who is going to be effective in dealing with people needs to understand how that difference is. And my only point is, I don't want you to hear this morning, if you have been divorced and you're remarried again and well on your way to serving God and, and uh, doing what God wants you to do, certainly don't want you to think that anything that I'm saying this morning that centers around this uh, brings it into the New Testament light. I'm telling you again, the New Testament doctrine for the church found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some night on a Thursday night Bible study or Whatever, if you'd like to go through it, I'd be glad to show you how that thing works. But here's what you got. In other words, what I'm saying is this. This is an illustration. Here he's using an illustration under the Old Testament law, and I'm going to show you why in just a moment. He's showing you and using an illustration of a man and a woman under the Old Testament law that are married together to show us what happened the day that we got saved in relationship now to the law. This is the point. You're not giving some New Testament teaching on it. He's showing you by an example under the law of a man married under a, into a wife under the Old Testament law how it works for you and me the day we got saved. And this is very, very important to understand this. And a little bit later on, he shows you how the law affects your children. We'll get into that at a later time. And he's showing how the law affects us before we were saved and now after salvation how we are free from the law by using an Old Testament example, which he does many, many times. Now let me start by going back in the last chapter, because we've got to identify the law. I don't want to go any farther now without giving you an understanding of what he's talking about here in the law. We're going to have to define all of these pieces here. Now look in Romans chapter 6 and go back to verse 23, the last, the last uh, verse in that great chapter, and uh, we're going to set the stage for what we have here so we can better break it down and understand it and get a grasp on it. Because I want you to understand the book of Romans. If you're going to be valuable to this church in ministry, and you're going to be able to work with people and get to the point where you are effective, you're going to have to understand why you believe what you believe. Now he says in chapter 6, verse 23, he says this, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, next Saturday, when I bring you through the second aspect of soul winning, 
One of the things that I'm going to show you is how this is, if, as you're winning someone to Christ, and I'm going to give you a, a basic format, and you'll have to be able to divide it for yourself, but I'm going to show you a basic format to work through, and then you can decide and put it together. But I'm going to show you that when you're winning someone to Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is what I call my pivotal verse. It's where I, it's where I now have come from laying the fact that a person is unsaved and and then where I'm going to, that God has provided the gift of God, which is eternal life. It's a great pivotal verse in winning someone to Christ. But for us today, it's even more than that. And we'll get into that next Saturday, but it's even more than that. Because when it says, for the wages of sin is death, and that's what we want to focus on, it's simply saying that the law, the Old Testament law, <clears throat> the law of sin and death, that you and I as an unsaved person is under. It demands a payment for sin. Somebody said one time, and I hear this all the time, in fact, I saw it on a billboard, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago as I was driving, it says, crime doesn't pay. I heard a pastor that had a famous message that he liked to preach, this has been 30 years ago, and he kind of hitchhiked off the same thing, and he said, and his deal was that sin doesn't pay. But I beg to differ with you that crime pays and so does sin because the Bible says there's wages that are connected with our sin. There is a payday. O.R.G. Lee used to preach the great sermon, payday someday. There's a payday coming and that payday is going to be where an unsaved man or an unsaved woman pays their own sin debt. Why? Because under the law, they are guilty. Under the law, they are guilty, and the wages of their sin under the law, the penalty for that is death. So sin does pay. Now this death that he's talking about in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, is not physical death. It isn't you dying and going to the funeral home. No, no, no. You're going to find that in the Bible, many concepts have two different definitions. You take the word, you take the word damnation. You know there's two meanings for the word damnation in the Bible? There's a physical definition of damnation, and then there's a spiritual definition of damnation. Let's look at them for a moment. Now, when you are physically damned, or damnation in the physical sense, that means that you destroy your body. Your body, your flesh. When, you dam when damnation to your physical body takes place, it runs like this. You're an alcoholic all your life, and by the time you're 60, 70 years old, you know what? You got cirrhosis of the liver. You got some ailment that came along from drinking all those years. Uh, someone who lives a wild lifestyle and, and it takes drugs, and by the time you're 50, 60, 70 years old, because of the carousing, the drinking, and all the things that go along with it, you're 40 years old and you look like you're 90. That's, that's, a, that's a damnation of your flesh. That is a quickening process by you allowing sin in your life fast-forwards your physical body to the grave. Now, at the same time, there's a spiritual damnation, you see? That's dying and going to hell. See, one is physical and the other one is spiritual. Physical damnation is drinking yourself into oblivion or whatever. Spiritual damnation is dying without Christ and spending eternity in the lake of fire. There's judgment. Now, here's another word, the word judgment. There's two judgments in the Bible in, in respect to, to us. There's a, there's a physical judgment. 
And that physical judgment means you break the law, you speed, you rob somebody, you kill somebody. There's a legal system that your body is attentive to that you have to give an account, and there's a judgment that comes along with that. Now, on the spiritual side, the Bible says that every man and every woman is going to be judged someday spiritually. For an unsaved man, it's a great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. For you and for me as a Christian, it's the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the Bible says, just as there is a physical judgment right now, you shoot somebody, you go to jail, you go to court, you pay the price, you go to prison, or you do whatever they do with you, that is a physical judgment. There's coming a day when you will stand before the judge. And that judge will sentence you spiritually as an unsaved person or at the judgment seat of Christ. You'll pay and receive the rewards or lose the rewards as God's child. So there's another one. Then there's another word, condemnation. Now there's a physical condemnation and there's a spiritual condemnation. The physical condemnation, again, has to do with your flesh. You, you reap the world, you, sow the reap, you, sow, uh, you reap the wind, you sow the uh, whirlwind. The Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that will he also reap. That's condemnation, physical condemnation. You drink and drive, you're going to get a DWI, you're going to kill somebody. See? You do something in the flesh as, a, as an unsaved person and you continue to do it. The Bible says, they that live by the sword, what? Shall die by the sword. That is a physical condemnation. Yet there's a spiritual condemnation. That spiritual condemnation is, again, it's going uh, to hell and spending an eternity in the lake of fire. Oh, now we got the word death. Death in the Bible, and that's what we're talking about. For the wages of sin is death. See? Two definitions for the word death in the Bible. And you want to take these and mark these, and every time you find these words that I've given you, I've given you some great keys here, you want to look at the context, and you want the first thing you want to determine, is it physical or is it spiritual, see? And uh, there's a couple of ways that you do that, and that's another great question for Thursday night. But the word death, the wages of sin is death. Now, there's two types of death in the Bible. One is physical, and that is that someday we're all going to die if Jesus doesn't come, and they're going to take you down to the funeral home, and they're going to they're pump you full of a bombing fluid, they're going to slap you in a casket, and everybody's going to walk away and say, boy, he looks good. I mean, that's the way it's going to go. You're going to die someday. That's physical death, physical death. But in the Bible, when it talks about spiritual death, spiritual death is separation from God spiritually through all of eternity. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What he's saying here is that this is not a physical death, but a spiritual death. It is a separation because of our sin. Why? Because the law. The law says sin has to be paid for. In the Old Testament, when they broke the law, did God just say, oops? No. There was a very intricate system of bringing a sacrifice to the high priest. And that high priest made an offering for you of that sacrifice that, that temporarily put away that sin. Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never pay for your sin. But it temporarily covered it till who? Christ came. You ever wonder why when John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I'll tell you why. Because that man, Christ, was the Lamb that was going to make the final sacrifice that there would have to be no more lambs. 
In other words, what did Christ do? What did he do for you and for me that we couldn't do ourselves? Let me tell you, it's real simple. He kept the law. He kept for me what I couldn't keep myself. Because the law, the law demands a penalty for sin. And as an unsaved man, as an unsaved woman, we had no ability to keep that law. When Christ came down and died, He kept that law for me. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 says, And fear not them which are able to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. See, two types of death. But rather fear Him, that's God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a physical death, and then there's a spiritual death. Now, I'm going to keep saying this over and over again because this is the point I want you to get. The Old Testament of the law demands, demands death for sin against God. Spiritual death. Spiritual death. Now, how do we know that it's talking about a spiritual death? Now, I'm not saying that you live your life lawless and you do whatever you want to do, that you won't die physically quicker than you would have if you had done what's right with God. Not saying that. What I am saying is this. When you die physically, you also, if you're unsaved, you're going to die spiritually and you're going to spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Now, how do we know that this is a spiritual death that we're talking about here and not just talking about a physical death? Well, we know that from the Bible itself. You don't have to turn back to it now, but you want to jot this down and maybe go back later. Write down Genesis chapter 2, write down verse 17. As you can see already, this message today is more of a teaching format than it is a preaching format simply because there's times coming through Romans where I don't need to preach to you about something, but I need to show you something what you got. If you get down what I'm talking about today, it's really going to help you in putting your Bible together. It's going to help you better understand where you're at, and it certainly will help you better understand when you're winning someone to Christ This is why I waited till we were in the book of Romans to have Scott and Barb bring you through these things and then finally me bring it all together is because I want you to see while we're in the book of Romans how we can tie some of this stuff together. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, God put Adam and Eve down in a garden. He put them down in that garden. That garden was a perfect estate and he said to them, he said, you know what, of all the trees that are here in the garden, you can have what you want. But he says there's two trees that you can't have anything to do with right now. One of them is the tree of life. The other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's what he told him in 2.17. And here's my point. He says, because Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you'll die. Now, you know how I know it wasn't spiritual death? I mean, physical death? You know how I know that when he said that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, that he wasn't talking about Adam eating a piece of fruit. Now, now, if you go out in the woods and there's some stuff that you eat, you're going to be dead before you get out of the woods. Poison. I mean, over in Africa and Australia, you got to be very careful what you eat. You go, out and, you go out in the woods right now and everybody likes to hunt mushrooms. You get the wrong mushrooms and you'll be pushing something up. Daisies. <laughs> you'll be dead. And there's things that you go out there and you eat right now that'll kill you physically. But that's not what we got. He says, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam, the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And you know what he did? He ate of it. But you know what else? He lived to be six, seven hundred years past that point physically. 
He didn't die physically today. That wasn't the death he was talking about. Adam didn't die physically the eighth the day they ate the fruit, but he did die spiritually, you see. He lived to be six, seven, eight hundred years more longer than that. He didn't die physically that day, but he died spiritually. Ah, this is what Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is saying when he makes the comparison. He says, wherefore, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. There's Adam. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. When he disobeyed God and ate the wrong tree, look what it says, and so, because of that, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Well, I'm still alive. You're still alive. It's not talking about physical death. That's what you got to see this morning. It's talking about a spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. If you're here this morning and you're a lost man or you're a lost woman, you know, in, in, I don't know if they still do it anymore, but for years and years and years, when a man was on death row, kind of hard to find because we don't execute anybody anymore. Everybody gets a, you know, gets a stay of execution for 40 years and uh, they never execute them or they, and they did away with the death penalty. But when a death penalty was in effect and a man was convicted of a murder by a peer, jury of his peers and it was beyond a reasonable shadow of doubt that he was guilty and he was sentenced to die and he was on death row after his peels run out on his day of execution and they walk him down that last corridor down there and they call it the last mile and it's not probably a mile but uh, it probably just seems like it's a long way and some guys probably didn't seem like it's long enough but he's walking down there you know what a guy and this is they did this for time and time and time and time of eternity I don't know if they do it anymore but they used to do it all the way back through the 1800s the 1900s up through the 30s up through the uh, 40s up through the 50s up through the 60s and you know what that guy does they carry that guy down he's shackled he's chained and he's walking down there and on death row and all the other sides is all the other prisoners, and behind him, two guards on the side, a chaplain in front, and a guy behind. You know what the guy behind does? The guy behind cries out as he walks, dead man walking. You know what that means? That means he's walking, but he's dead. Because in about two minutes, they're going to strap him in, run up the generator, and fry him. Put him in a gas chamber, and gas him. And he is literally been judged, been condemned, and now, even though he's alive, everybody needs to know he is a dead man walking. Let me tell you something. If we would play life out the way it really needs to be played out, and, 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 and it would go the way that the Bible says it should go, every unsaved man and woman is walking on planet Earth. Ought to be somebody behind them saying and crying out, dead man walking. Because if you're here this morning or an unsaved person is unsaved, as far as God's concerned, now you need to understand, not me, I have no say in it. If I could get you out of it, I'd get you out of it. But as far as, uh, as God is concerned, you are a dead man walking, you're as good as in hell right now with a door shut, with a key lost, and the lock rusted, and you are as good as in there right now. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The law says it demands it. You've rejected the only payment for it, and now you're walking, but you are spiritually dead. And your trespasses of sin. You're a dead man walking. 
You're a dead man walking. Now somebody says, and I hear this all the time when you start to talk to people about salvation. They always throw you this line. You'll hear it too sooner or later. But I'm a really good person. I've heard some guy, guy one time, and this guy said to me, he said, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, I've never done this. I've never done that. And you see, this is the mindset that we get into because we don't understand what's taking place. You know what the Bible says in the book of James? The Bible says in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 10, it says that if you kept the whole law, everything in that law, if you kept the whole law and yet violated it in one point, the Bible says you're guilty of it all. You see, it's not about the fact of what you do or what you don't do. It's not about the fact that, that what's big sin or little sin. It's the fact, the bottom line is that the wages of any sin is death. If the law demands it, unless you get somebody else to pay that debt, the law is going to demand that you pay it. Now, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, deals with how you and I were set free. This is why I gave you the background first. Now, we're firmly planted here. We're firmly planted before we can move into this chapter, because you need to get this in your Bible, because sometime along the way, if you do any kind of personal work, or you talk to anybody, or God puts you in a situation at work, somebody's going to ask you about Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And you need to put this in your Bible the way I'm going to break it down for you. But This chapter deals with how you and I were set free from that death penalty, from the wages of sin because of the law that you and I violated, and how you and I got set free by God's grace and God's mercy even though we never deserved it. Now that will bring us back to Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 that shows us how the great mercy of God. You know, God's grace and God's mercy is a great concept. I don't think that just going into the Bible that I am adequate enough to be able to take the Bible. And, and I notice that God does this a lot. A lot of times when, when the Bible is talking about great concepts, well, like Romans chapter 7. Well, that would be a tough concept for us to grasp if we didn't have that little illustration. Now, you've got to remember, I'm teaching it to you already knowing the illustration, even though we haven't went through the illustration. So I'm giving you the background, me fully knowing the illustration, before I give you the illustration. But I want to tell you the truth. It would be tough to try to put this thing together without the illustration he gives in 1 chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3. He does that a lot. I think the greatest example I ever heard, the greatest example I ever heard of grace and mercy that illustrates to me what God did for me is found in a story that I, and I just found this by accident a number of years ago, and I wrote it down. I have a, I have now, I think it's regular, like six notebooks. I have six notebooks of things that I have read over the years that I wanted to remember. And now I can't remember where I put the notebooks, but it, it, I have them someplace. Because there are things that I, when I read, I thought to myself, man, that says what I want to say sometime. So I'd write it down. I probably got six or seven legal pads filled with them. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll go back and just take a day and read back through them and refresh my mind on them. And uh, the last time I came through, I had this written down. And I, I usually date them. I didn't have a date on this, but it has to be back in the mid-'80s when I, when I read this. 
But I don't know of a greater illustration of God's mercy and God's grace than I read this story. It's a true story. It happened all the way back in the, in the end of the 1920s uh, into the early 30s. You know, when you ever fly into New York City, everybody knows LaGuardia Airport. LaGuardia Airport is, uh, I think there's, there's, there's two airports, one in, one in uh, Newark and then there's LaGuardia Airport. And LaGuardia Airport, most people don't know that, is named after a man. LaGuardia was a man who was the mayor of New York City. He may even have been the governor of New York at one point after that. I don't know for that for sure, but I knew, though, he was the mayor. Before he was a mayor, he was, like most mayors, he was a judge. And uh, he sat on the bench there in, uh, at the end of the 20s, end of the 30s, and he was on the bench and a judge during the Depression. During the Depression, a man was brought in before him in his courtroom for stealing bread. And this man had four or five kids. He had lost his job. He couldn't get any work, couldn't get any food. He had three or four little mouths to feed. And so out of desperation, he went and he stole some bread to feed his kids. The law is the law. <clears throat> they caught him red-handed. And they put him in jail and he went before Judge LaGuardia. He explained his case. The prosecutor said that may be true, but he broke the law. And because of that, we arrested him and there's no question about it. And the man admitted it. He didn't get up and say, I didn't do it. He said, no. Hey, Your Honor, I stole the bread. I got three little mouths to feed. I'm out of work. I worked all my life. I'm in a situation where I got to feed my family. Yes, sir, I did it. Well, when a court came up and, and he had no money for a lawyer, and he was guilty beyond reasonable doubt. The prosecutor wanted him, wanted him uh, prosecuted. Judge LaGuardia found him guilty. And found, him 20, fined him $20. Now, $20 in the 1920s was probably like $200 today. Well, obviously, he didn't have the $20. He didn't have money for the bread. The man did not have the money. And the judge fined him for $20. And as the man stood there, and the judge snapped down his gavel, and he says, I, 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 I'm not going to put you in jail, but if you, I'm going I'm to charge you, you're found guilty, and I'm gonna, uh, you, uh, you, your court orders you to pay $20 in restitution and $20 for the court cost, $20. The guy just stood there. He didn't have $20. He didn't have $0.20. Cents. Then Judge LaGuardia did one of the greatest things that I've ever heard about in the history of of law. He got up, walked over to the prosecutor and the court clerk, took out his billfold, and paid the man's $20. Then he went back on the court on the bench, stood before the people, and it was packed, and he took up a collection for the guy who was out of work and got another $30. If that wasn't enough, then he looked at the city administrator and the city prosecutor and he fined the city $70 for allowing conditions to exist that a man would have to steal bread to feed his kids. Wow! Now that's what I'm talking about. You see? He's like you and me. He couldn't pay. But the law said he was guilty. So Judge LaGuardia paid the fine, then took up a collection, and then fined the city, and the guy went out with his debt paid, his debt canceled, 
and a hundred bucks in his pocket. That's what God did for you. That's what God did for you and for me. The law said we were guilty. The law said there's no way around it. I'm sorry. Yes, you got kids to feed. But the law's the law. And he had no more ability to pay that $20 as you and I have the ability to get out from under the sin debt that the law says we owe. Just as Judge LaGuardia got up and paid his faith, one day Jesus Christ came down to this earth and he paid, he paid the debt and he canceled it out. And then he took up a collection and stuffed our pockets full of the blessings of God. Woo! Almost makes you want to get lost again just to get saved again and go through the experience, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Now, verse 1 through 3 in chapter 7 is an illustration of what really took place spiritually when you and I got saved through God's mercy and through God's grace. Now, before you and I were saved, we were, I'm going to say it again, we were under the power and the bondage of the law. No way out. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 has already stated it so clearly that your wages and my wages for that sin was death. But at salvation, when you got placed into Christ's death, that'd be Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6 that we studied last time, and got placed into his body as his bride, the bride of Christ, the church, your payment and your penalty of your sin were paid and canceled out so now the law, death spiritually, has no power over you any longer. And just like the man before Judge LaGuardia, you got a lot of extras, the blessings. And you got to always look at the importance of the context of where you're at. When you get into Romans chapter 7, <clears throat> we're not dealing with the, with the teachings of how the church is supposed to deal with people about divorce, remarriage. That's not what it's dealing with here. That's covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where God administers the grace. Totally different whole world in the New Testament from the Old Testament. But what we are dealing with here in the context is a demand, and this is what you have got to see and understand. We're dealing with the demands of the law that says you and I are sinners and we're under the law and nothing can change that until the law is satisfied. Nothing is going to change. Now, what you've got in chapter 7, verse 1 through and 3 is how it changes. Now this whole illustration is going to make more sense to you. And you need to get this in your Bible. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Well, we're out of time. Thank you for this week. No, 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 we're going to get you to the point and leave you. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now we're going to go to work. Now we got the foundation laid. Now we're going to put our thinking caps on. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. Has a whole different meaning now that we explained it, doesn't it? How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Now what you've got here is this. Verse 2 says, for the woman. Say, we got two characters. We got to get characterized here. Here's what we got. Here's the Old Testament illustration that illustrates the New Testament truth. 
What follow here is a great picture. Now we got a little cast of characters. First of all, we got a man. That man is going to represent our flesh. Okay? You want to get that down. Then we got a woman. And that woman is going to represent our soul. See? Before salvation. And I told you before, the Old Testament passages on this are Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, which is basically where Romans 7 comes from, as far as the application here, and Matthew chapter 19. This man and this woman, who represents our flesh and our soul before salvation, is a picture through an Old Testament example of a man and a woman married under the Old Testament law, which is a picture of your soul and your flesh stuck together before you were saved. Now, this is what you got to see. It's a picture of the man representing your flesh and the woman <coughs> representing your soul. And under the Old Testament law, they are one. They have been joined together. Under that law, they can never, 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 <coughs> never be separated unless... The man dies. That illustrates where you and I were at before we got saved. We covered this when we came through chapter 6. And I took a whole day and laid out the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. You should know now that before you were saved, your problem and my problem and everybody's problem as an unsaved man is that the flesh, which is sinful is and physical is stuck to the soul which is spiritual and this king here spiritual stuck to that thing which is sinful the bible says that we are now dead in trespasses of sin that's our problem that's our issue that's why in verse 2 it says for the woman that's your that's your soul now which hath a husband that's your flesh is bound by the law, all right? Bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Know what that means? That means in the Old Testament, she had a husband, she was stuck with him. And she had to stay with him. And she couldn't get out of any way, shape, or form. You say, well, yeah, there was divorce in the Bible. That's another thing. Moses... Because of the hardness of the people's heart gave divorce, a written bill of divorcement that God allowed. But from the beginning it wasn't so. And under the law, that can't happen. So what transpires here is the fact that she's stuck with him. And there's no way she can get out from under that marriage or get loose from him unless he dies. It shows that before you and I were saved... Our flesh, the man, and your soul, the woman, were stuck together and were subject to the law of sin and death just like they were subject to the Old Testament law. No way we're going to get out of it. No way, shape, or form. That's what makes us a sinner. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death because of the law. There was absolutely no way for them to get out from under that law other than death. And there was absolutely no way for us to get out from under our flesh, under the law, without something dying. Verse 3. 
So then if her husband, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Again, he says it again. And this is the key. As long as her husband and as long as your flesh is alive, she can never marry another man and you are stuck to your flesh and you are both under the law. She, the Old Testament law, you and I under the law of sin and death and can never, never be free. But if he dies, then she's free from the law and can be marry another man. All right, let's see where he's going. Now what follows here shows you what he's saying. And this is the great picture and the great principle of this illustration to you and to me. Look at verse 4. Wherefore? Uh, now I'm just going to tell you. Uh, if I were you, this would be a hard thing to do. But if I were you, every time I find the word wherefore in the Bible, I'd circle it in red. Every time. I personally think that wherefore, the word wherefore in the Bible is one of the greatest keys to figuring out context. You know why? Because it means something. Most people don't understand English structure. So when they read a wherefore, it doesn't mean anything to them. Wherefore will always mean in the Bible that because of what I just said, this goes along with it. Incredible to understand that. Now that's something that we all should have learned in sixth grade English, but I didn't, and probably you didn't either. And uh, it's, it's key. Wherefore, because of what I just said, <coughs> wherefores will always be the bridge from, from where it's going to where it's going. Always will be. <coughs> and I, <coughs> you ever have a chance to do it on a rainy afternoon when you got nothing to do? I'd go through my Bible, get a concordance, and I'd find every wherefore in there, and I'd just go through and just put every one of them a big red circle around it so when you saw it, you knew what it was. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now that verse simply says this, just like the couple in the Old Testament that were under the law, you and I, our soul and our flesh, were stuck together and under the law. And just, because, just the way that she could not be free till he died, you and I could not be free till our flesh died. Now here's the great parallel. Just as under the law in the Old Testament, a man and a woman were stuck together till death and could not leave one another under the penalty of death, our soul, the woman, and our flesh, the man, before salvation were stuck together under the law of sin and death, Romans chapter 6. Before salvation, your soul, the woman, and your flesh, the man, were married. They were joined together. And as the Bible says, you were born, you were under the age of accountability, and then you hit that magical age where the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, as by one man sin into the world and death by sin, death is passed upon all men. And at some point in your life and my life, when we grew up, we hit that point and we made the same bad choice that Adam made. The Bible said do this. The law said do this. We did something else. And at that moment, we are dead and we're stuck together with that flesh. You're joined in a marriage. Your spiritual uh, soul with your physical flesh. And you're stuck with it. You're stuck with it. But when you receive Christ as your Savior, ah, here it comes, through grace and mercy, the Holy Spirit of God came inside you, 
Colossians chapter 2, and we talked about it in a very simple way. He separated your soul from your flesh. Now you have a new nature and an old nature. The old nature represents your flesh. The new nature represents your new person in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. Wherefore, my brethren, ye, you are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. See that thing? When you got saved, the law died. It doesn't have any effect on you anymore. Why? Because now your flesh is dead. That operation, he separated. He broke up the marriage. What, what had to die, died so you could be married to another. And the Old Testament law, it was her husband. And spiritually in you or me, it was our flesh. The moment you got saved, God separated your soul from your flesh. He killed that flesh. And now you're free. Your soul, the woman, body of Christ, the real you is free to be joined together with another, even Jesus Christ. Wow. What a great example. What the Bible says, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Law has no more effect on me. Law has no more effect on me. At the point of salvation, you are put into Christ and His death. And your flesh now is dead and you are free to marry another. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So before you were saved, your soul was married to the flesh under the law. But now your soul was married to Christ and the flesh has become dead through Calvary's cross and you're free to marry another. You know, in the Bible, and I know probably most of you don't understand this, we get bits and pieces of it. Nobody's really asked a good question on here for a while. But in the Bible, one of the greatest keys to the Bible, one of the greatest things to study in the Bible is this marriage. You know, the, the whole Bible, I know the theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I understand that. But you know, the whole Bible is built around as far as God's perspective is, is it not only his son taking the kingdom, but his son getting a bride. You know, there's a wedding. You ever notice how weddings, every culture has weddings that are always the joy. They all do different things, you know, but they're all, they're all a joyous occasion, and a joyous time. I mean, you'll find in, in Song of Solomon, it's all built around a wedding. You'll find in Matthew chapter 22, the Bible says that in the tribulation period, he sends out guests and he calls them to a wedding. You'll find in Revelation chapter 19, after the judgment seat of Christ, right before the second coming, the Bible says that the bride has made herself wedding for a wedding. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take. Because what happened in reality is what this great illustration is. You were under the law, yet your flesh was stuck to your soul. And you were under the penalty of the law, but the day you got saved through Calvary's cross, God made a way for you to be separated. And now, as the Bible says, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Why? Because now you're free. And the moment you got, the moment, the moment, the moment, the moment, the moment, you got saved, you were a spouse to Christ. Now, I need to tell you this. <clears throat> that word espoused is our word for engagement. And I know that most people today, they have really no idea of what the Bible's idea of an engagement is. The, in the, the engagement in the Bible is a, is a very crucial thing. It's a very important thing. And you're going to find that, like in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 24, you're going to find that, that when two people are engaged, God already calls them husband and wife, even though they haven't physically consummated the marriage yet. And of course, 
You know in the Bible that a marriage consummation has nothing to do with a ceremony. Those are the little things we put on our heads today, but in reality, it's, it's, it's never been that, never will be that. Now, when you understand that, you realize that in the Bible, when God looks at two people in the Old Testament under the law that are engaged, He looks at them as husband and wife. In fact, in that passage just gave you, He calls the betrothed, betrothed, betrothed engaged, espoused. Uh, he calls her the, uh, the wife and calls him the husband. Here are what He looks at it in that mindset. Now that's very important because, you know what? I have been, I have been set free the moment I got saved, <coughs> but I haven't been married yet. Because the marriage, if you look at the chart back there, right in the middle of tribulation period where it says the marriage of the Lamb. I'm going to the wedding, but I'm under this concept that I'm already His, I'm already his bride, I'm already married in God's mind simply because of the fact that it's a sure thing. This is what we'll get into in Romans chapter 8 with the redemption of our body. You'll see this great truth. But you and I need to understand that studying that marriage in the Bible is one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in your life. And we're engaged. He's, 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 my, he's my bridegroom. I'm the bride. It's as good as there. Just as an unsaved man is as good in, 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 in hell right now, if you're a saved person, you're as good as in heaven right now. You know what the Bible says? Bible says you're seated in heavenly places. No, you're not. You're seated here. This certainly isn't a heavenly place. You're seated here. How in the world can God say you're seated in heavenly places when you're still seated here? You know why? Because in God's mind, you're already there. That's how sure it is. He sees you there. This is why one of the greatest studies you'll ever take and you know, Scott's going to teach it. It's already being taught to the ladies. But one of the greatest studies you'll ever take is understanding the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. Now look at verse 6, 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, now this is, these 5 and 6 are a comparison verse. These are, this is another thing you want to look at in the Bible. Sometimes verses or passages will be comparison. In other words, it will give you a verse here and then a comparison verse or a a passage here and a comparison passage. This is called a comparison uh, verse. Verse 5 and 6. They're a comparison or contrast. Two opposites. For when we were in the flesh, when we were unsaved, the motions of sin, which were by the law, there it is again, see? Law of sin and death did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. See that thing? Verse 6. But now, here comes the contrast. We are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. You see, the Bible says in verse 5, it says the law brings forth death. Why? Because the law is holy and we're not. We can't keep it. Christ kept it for us. But now we're delivered from the law. Why? Because when you got saved, God killed your flesh and separated it from your soul. And you have been delivered from the law and its penalty of death. Now, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to say it again. Being dead from the law doesn't mean that I can go out and kill somebody, steal something, or, 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 or live a life of sin with impunity, without any, con without any conflict, without any, any accountability. It means that we have been delivered from the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, and the demands of the law have been met and canceled out through Christ's death on the cross. Now the judgment of God can never fall on you or me 
in the sense of an unsaved man. Why? Because it fell on Christ instead of you and me. He, kept, he did what you and I couldn't do. He kept the law. He kept the law. The Bible says he was tempted on all points like you are, yet without sin. He kept the law. And he fulfilled the oldness of the letter that you and I might have the newness of the Spirit. See, look at verse 6, the newness of the Spirit. I didn't get saved. I don't, I don't, I don't go out and not sin or do this or do that or live like the world because, you know, I, I, I know I'm saved and I can do what I want to do now. That's not the motive behind it. Look at verse 6. I don't serve in the oldness of the letter. I serve in the newness of the Spirit. Now my obedience, your obedience, should spring forth from the new man, the new creature, the new nature, a man that loves God, the man that, that uh, desires to serve Him, the man and the woman that understand they're free from the bondage of the law. You know, in the old days, Kansas City, Independence, I don't know if you know it or not, back in the middle of the 1800s and even probably a little bit before that, was a great jumping off spot for the people going out west. And this is where Independence, Missouri was the places where they, you know, the wagon trains formed up and they had to cross the Great Prairie to get uh, into California, wherever they were going. And uh, this was a great hub here where, you know, th this part of the United States from here eastward, it was pretty well civilized. Ohio became a state in 1803 and died down the line. It was pretty well civilized. It was still <coughs> uh, wide open, but I mean, it wasn't full of Indians and danger, and you could pretty well travel through it. They had the railroad and steamboats coming up the Mississippi and the Missouri and could get you here, and people came to Independence, Missouri, and this was a great jump-off spot to go out. Uh, of course, they had a great trek ahead of them. And I read one time <coughs> years ago that one of the greatest problems that they had crossing the prairie, we would think it would be Indians. I'm not saying Indians weren't a problem, <coughs> but even more uh, than that was prairie fires. And now, you know, we drive across Kansas, you know, and <clears throat> we let out there and we, we look at all that out there and we get that. It, it's really not like what it used to be. The prairie grass used to get high. I mean, it was just covered. You, you know, it's hard to find. Sometimes you'll drive down a freeway and in Kansas and some of those places, they'll have in the medium, they'll have prairie grass growing like again. They'll put a sign there. This is native prairie grass, you know. Stop, take some pictures of it, you know. And, you know. Take it home to your family and say, right after that, we saw the big, biggest, world's biggest groundhog hole right down there in Kansas, you know. <clears throat> but it grew high. It was everywhere. And you had a trail. You know, everybody, they had the Santa Fe Trail. They had the Oregon Trail. You had all those things. And they were pretty well rutted out. In fact, today, you can go out in places in the, <clears throat> in the, in the, uh, in the states in Kansas and the Colorado and those places where they went out there. And after a hundred and some years, uh, you can still see the wagon wheel rut where thousands and thousands of wagons went across that thing. I think it's always interesting. But their greatest danger was prairie fires. Lightning would strike. That tall grass, which was dry, would, would just burn, and, and many, many wagon trains were lost, and many people were killed. It would be like a raging forest fire. Except it's not trees, it's prairie grass, which burns faster than trees do and a lot quicker. And you get a good wind behind it, and you're in trouble. You'll never outrun it, especially if you've got wagons with, you know, carrying your, stall your stuff, and you'll never outrun it. So somebody got the idea that when a prairie fire would come and they'd see the prairie fire coming their way, <clears throat> what they'd do, the wagon master <clears throat> would not try to outrun it. He'd go about a half a mile ahead, he'd go about a half a mile ahead and then uh, stop the wagons and then he'd get on the other side of those wagons because the wind was blowing t away from them, coming toward them, but on the other side away from them, he'd start another fire. 
and the fire that was coming toward them, they're stopped here. They started a fire on the other side. The wind blew that fire the other direction. And pretty soon in 15, 20 minutes, they had a, a large section that was already burned. So what the wagon master would do, would he'd tell them to circle the wagons into the area that was already burned. So when the fire that was coming their way got to the grass that was already burned, couldn't burn anymore. Can't burn twice. That's how I got saved. God saw the fire of hell coming my way. You know what he did? He got me a patch over here and he burned it out for me. When I got saved, I just stood in that patch and when the hell comes to me, it comes right to that thing. Can't burn twice. I'm already standing where it had been burnt. A little girl one time, she's out in the garden with her mother. <clears throat> and she's just a little sweet kid and she's out there playing around like all kids do, you know, and her mother was there with her, you know, and they were looking at the flowers and everything, you know, and... and uh, <clears throat> The mom kind of put her hand around her here like that and, 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 and shielded her for a moment and, and then come back here and the little girl, when she did that, the little girl saw, saw a, 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 a honeybee. She got scared. She says, Mama, she says, she says, I'm scared. She says, I don't want that bee to sting me. Mama said, honey, that bee can't sting you. She says, yeah, Mama, my Mama, that bee will sting me. Mama said, no, honey, it won't sting you. She said, well, yeah, I will, Mama. She said, no, honey, it can't sting you. Why, Mama? Because it already stung me. See, a honeybee can only sting one time. And when the mother saw it, she put her hand around the kid and the bee stung the mother. So when the little girl saw the honeybee, she said, I don't want to get stung. Mama said, you can't sting you. It already stung me. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5? It says, oh, death, where is thy sting? You know why I don't fear the sting of death? Because it already stung him. He took the sting for me. Amen. Took the sting out of it for me. That's what he did. Oh, Now, getting it all together here, and this is a great passage, and like I said, I didn't preach to you today, I taught this to you today because I want you to see it. Laid the foundation first, then went back and laid out the verses. Now, here's what we got, getting it all together. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, God uses an example to show us, as New Testament Christians, how we are dead to the law. It's an example of a man who represents our flesh and an example of a woman who represents our soul who under the Old Testament law are bound together that they can never separate unless the man dies. That example is a picture of you and me before we were saved. My soul was bound to my flesh and there was no way under the law of sin and death that I could ever get out from under that relationship. And the wages of that sin is death. Because the spiritual soul was joined to my physical sinful flesh. When we died, we died in our sin. And that's why the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4, this is the verse you want to get in here. It simply says this, the soul that sinneth it shall die. Somebody says, well, how can a soul sin? A whole soul soul spiritual. A soul can't pick up a bottle of beer. A soul can't smoke this. A soul can't shoot this. A soul can't do that. How can a soul sin? A soul can't sin but it's stuck to a flesh that can sin. And so when it dies, when the flesh dies, the soul was tainted with that sin because it's, it's not separated. That's why. When Christ died on the cross, when Christ died on the cross and you got saved, He separated my soul and my flesh. The flesh was made dead through His death 
and he put us into his body. This is what we talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Remember when we talked about the baptism of Jesus' death and I explained that to you? Well, that's what it's talking about, the baptism of Jesus' death, being put into that death. Now my flesh is dead and my soul can now be married to another man as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. And you know what? I said this earlier. All through the Bible, almost every place you go, you keep finding that wedding. You keep finding that wedding. The first time you find it in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve. You know that Adam and Eve were the first marriage in the Bible? Adam and Eve is the first time you find a marriage. In fact, it's there in Adam and Eve where he says she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. When Paul talks about church in Ephesians chapter 5 and references to a marriage, he goes back and quotes it out of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. You realize that there's seven marriages in the Bible? There's seven women in the Old Testament that get married. Seven marriages in the Bible, and every one of them are a picture of the marriage that you and I are going to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is illustrated by Romans chapter <coughs> 7 of what happened, that now that we are free to marry another because our old man is dead. In Genesis chapter 24, oh, what a beautiful picture this is. Genesis chapter 24 is probably my favorite story in the Bible. It's a story of Isaac, and, and, and Isaac, uh, you know, Isaac is, uh, Abraham wants to get a, get a bride for Isaac, his son. And he sends Eleazar out. And Eleazar is the chief steward of, of Abraham. And so he gives him instructions, and he sends him out. And when he sends him out, he sends him out to find a bride for his son. Now, historically, it actually happened. Abraham was a real man, Isaac was a real man, Eleazar was a real man, and he actually went on a journey to find a bride for Abraham's son Isaac. And you can read the account there, and it's an incredible account of how he went out there and he had a little criteria he was looking for, you know, and he went up there and he found the woman, Rebecca. And uh, he found Rebecca, and uh, you know what, he brings her back to Isaac and, and, and they get married. It's an incredible story. But you know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of Romans chapter 7. It's a picture of the day you and I got saved and the wedding that's coming. Because Abraham is the greatest type of God the Father in the Bible. Isaac is one of the great types of Christ in the Bible. Eleazar is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's a picture that God the Father wanted a bride for his son to marry. So he sent Eleazar, the Holy Spirit of God, and all that journey is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. You can make a personal application. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God moving in your life and my life. I don't know your individual story of how you got saved. Not all of you. Some of you I do. But I can guarantee you it went just like this. It came to the point where the Holy Spirit of God introduced himself to you just like he did to Rebecca. And he started to talk about the master and all of these things. And she got intrigued. And he saw in her exactly what he was looking for. If you want to know what God, why some people get saved and some people don't, if you want to know what God looks for in a person's life to win, bring them to Christ, it's all in that Genesis chapter 24. So Eleazar finds Rebecca. And he begins to talk with her. And they go back, and they, they, they talk to her family. 
And he, he tells all of his journey. He talks about Abraham and about Isaac and why he's out on his journey to find a bride. Oh, and one of the greatest things there, uh, they, uh, they, he asked the family if she could come. And it's an incredible thing. The family looked at Rebecca and they said, you know what? She has to choose for herself. You know, that's so beautiful. When you get saved, you have to choose for yourself. Your family can't choose for you. I can't choose for you. Your husband or your wife can't choose for you. It's a picture of God orchestrated all the events. He brought everything into play to get Eleazar to Rebecca from Abraham with Isaac in the picture. But at the end of the day, Rebecca had to choose for herself. You know what she says? She says the same thing that you said, that I said, if you're saved this morning. When she looks at that, she says, yes, I'll go with this man. Oh, then the story even gets better. They're going back on that camel train and they're heading back and they're moving back down to that thing and the Bible says that Isaac, he's out in the field looking for that camel train to come in. And he sees that coming in the distance. Oh, and the Bible says when they see him, she gets off that camel and he meets his bride. And the Bible says that, that they, they, they become one and they, he, he takes her as his wife. Beautiful picture. You know, there's a song that, that, uh, uh, that is my favorite song. It goes with this. And uh, Bubba, uh, somebody needs to find this song. and You, you need to sing this song. It's, 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 the, it's the simple, the song when the, when the camel train comes in. You'd be great at singing it too. And it kind of goes like this. Oh, get ready, the evening shadows fall. Can't you hear Eliezer call? There's going to be a wedding, my joy will soon be full. In the evening when the camel train comes in. Oh, what a great picture. All through the Bible. All through the Bible. There's going to be a wedding in the air, in the sweet, sweet by and by. Yeah, there is. There there is. All through the Bible. All through the Bible. I look at the book of Esther. And I see while, that there's a, while there's a great conflict between a man who's a type of the Antichrist and a, and a man who's a type of Christ, I see during that time there's a wedding taking place. I find that in the book of Song of Solomon where all the attendants are there for the wedding for the bride with the bridegroom. I see it in Psalm chapter 45. I see it in Matthew chapter 25 where it talks about the fact that there were ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And they go through a little goofy little thing there. And then the Lord comes back and the door was shut and he goes to the marriage. Our marriage. Find it in Revelation chapter 14. Find it in Revelation chapter 19. Find it in Matthew chapter 22. Find it in John chapter 2 where the Bible says there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. All through the Bible. And you see, the reason for it is this. It's because before you and I were saved, we were stuck. Just like that woman under the law to her husband. And there's absolutely nothing that we could do to get out from under that. And then Jesus came. And when he died, he made a way through his death that you and I get separated. And now you're separated from your flesh and your soul is free to marry another. And to spend an eternity with him in the greatest environment, in the greatest circumstance, in the greatest situation the world has ever seen. Every head bowed, every eye closed.